0: Welcome to Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tarmati, where it's all about health optimization, anti-aging, longevity, and being the very best you can be. Brought to you by LisaTarmati.com. Well, hey, team, and welcome in this week to Pushing the Limits. Absolutely fantastic to have you with me again today. I've uh, dug up another absolutely amazing person for you to listen to. Um, I have Dr. Matt Phillips uh, to guest. He is uh, the metabolic neurologist. Um, That's a bit of a new term for most people. You might know what neurologists are, and he is a a clinical and research neurologist at Waikato uh, Hospital in Hamilton, New Zealand, Um, and he explores everything with the metabolic uh, side of neurodegenerative diseases, cancers, and so on. He's currently uh, doing a um, a clinical trial that combines intensive fasting with the ketogenic ketogenic diet alongside standard treatments uh, for patients with glioblastoma. And he's also conducted research uh, for people with Parkinson's disease um, and using this fasting and ketogenic approach. So we dive deep into the weeds, um, really looking at mitochondria. You may have heard again and again on this podcast, Cast me talking about mitochondria being at the base of so many of the lifestyle diseases that we have and that metabolic dysregulation and metabolic disorders that come from our current lifestyle and the way we live. Uh, the food that's available, the processed food, the carbohydrate excess that we're eating uh, and how it contributes to many, many of these disease processes. I certainly believe that and so does Dr. Matt uh, Phillips. And so we're we discussing today the implications for that, for things like Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, also for cancer, of course. And the when we talk about all these differing diseases, you may wonder, well, how, you know, uh, can that be relevant to all of these things? But at the basis, it's all about mitochondrial health. And that's what we do a deep dive into today. So I do hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Matt Phillips. He is, uh, really a, a very critical thinker, someone who has spent, I think, uh, in, in excess of 15 years studying his profession and then developing and working in the clinic as well as doing research, which is a, a bit of a heavy load to take. He's also someone who walks the talk. Uh, he, he uses himself as an N of one. He's done extensive uh, fasts himself. He understands the implications of it on how it's affected him and his performance and how he feels. Uh, and the, the benefits of metabolic flexibility and uh, all of that sort of stuff. So we get into a bit of a deep dive today into the, the, the metabolic approach not only to cancer, you may have heard me, the metabolic approach to cancer, but also the metabolic approach for all these other neurodegenerative diseases and other lifestyle diseases and how you might optimize your life through fasting and the keto diet and what that actually entails and what's actually involved. So I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Before we head over to the interview, please give us a a like, a review, a rating, depending if you're on the podcast or on our YouTube channel, Uh, really helps us get the word out there, share this with your family and friends. And do check out the stuff that we do. Um, is the, the main hub for all of my programs for coaching, corporate wellness programs, speaking, uh, health consulting, as well as my anti-aging and longevity uh supplement range, my books. Uh, four books over there on lisatarmity.com so make sure you check that all out and if you want to support the show you can support us by going to com and for the price of a cup of coffee a month or you can support the show and keep this free to air and get some great benefits on the side or you can go to uh, buy me a coffee uh, forward slash Lisa. I think it is I'll get the right link and put it in the show notes just opened up that page so you can buy me a coffee uh, if that's uh, uh, within your means to do so Uh, really appreciate your help as always and if you have any questions or you want to reach out to me or my team please email support at lisatarbity.com now over to the show with Dr. Matt Phillips the metabolic neurologist Well, hey, everyone, and welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Today, I have the honor of having Dr. Matt Phillips with me. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's fabulous to have you. Um, Matthew, can you just give us a little bit of a, a background before we dive in? You're, you're a metabolic neurologist. What the hell is that?
1: Yeah, thanks, Lisa. It's good to be here. It's a, it's a term I coined, so I thought uh, I want to specialize in metabolic therapies our metabolic strategies, call them what you will, and uh, no such uh, specialty really exists in neurology. So I decided I was going to have to start it. So I just started calling myself a metabolic neurologist a few years ago and got, got the website up that a patient started for me. And uh, that's it. Yeah. So it's yeah. something I, I sort of coined. Yeah.
0: yeah, and it's it's so so appropriate for the discussion that we're going to have today because it's all going to be about metabolic approaches to uh everything from Parkinson's to cancer to neurodegeneration who knows where this all this will go. Um sounds good. But you you've you've got a very interesting background as well. So you're a med- medical doctor you did your medical studies in Australia I believe but you come from Canada. Can you just give us a little bit of a brief on on how you got here?
1: Of course, yeah. I grew up in Canada, uh, British Columbia, uh, in the north near the Alaskan border, a small town called Terrace. And um, I did uh, two degrees at Queen's University in eastern Canada. So uh, first was a, a bachelor degree in biology, uh, evolutionary biology, nothing to do with people at all. It was <laughs> animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, all the, all the good stuff. And then I did a two-year master's degree over there, which was in uh, fish physiology. So I learned some biochemistry chemistry and some physiology during that and uh my supervisor was a excellent guy named uh, dr bruce tufts and he he really showed me how to uh how to how to how to, how to uh, apply the scientific method properly when you want to answer a question and, and, I, and i think he influenced me a lot later on anyways at age uh 24 i finished all that and then a couple of years there where i um did a bit of traveling, uh, did a couple of other things, got my pilot's license, Got my uh, worked in a telecommunications company named Nortel for about a year with my friends and, and whatever. Moved to Australia at age 26 to start medical school in Adelaide at Flinders University. Why? I think I was mainly just bored. And uh, so I wanted to see the world and did a four-year degree there in Adelaide and then jumped right into training. Uh, did the first few years of general physician training in Adelaide. And then my neurology training, I did the bulk of that in Melbourne at the Royal Melbourne hospital. And then at the age of 38, uh, I had finished my neurology training. I was a neurologist. And uh, so I decided uh uh, I've told the story a few times that I, I wanted to specialize in a therapy, but I didn't know what to how to do it because it was really not possible, the way our system is uh, designed and the way people think, as as I'm sure we'll get to. And I decided to sort of travel the world and uh, do a bit of volunteer work uh, and uh, work in a couple other places for about three year period before moving to New Zealand. And then in New Zealand, I was inspired and, and energized and ready to apply metabolic therapies and clinical trials to people with these difficult disorders. And it's been um, about seven years now that I've been doing that just over seven years. And here we are.
0: Yeah. uh, Overachiever, by the way, like incredible uh, backstory. Um, And you've, you've really focused, I heard you talking on, like I've listened to a few of your, 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 podcasts and lectures and things that you've done and um, you talked about like being frustrated a little bit as a neurologist you know dealing with the, the symptoms and the medications but not getting to the actual root cause and so you sort of like spend some time trying to work out how do I approach this very complex disease from a different perspective or these diseases um, and came up with uh, the sort of the metabolic side of the equation, which I'm very interested in because of, you know, I've I've done a lot of work in the whole metabolic approach to cancer side of, of the the story. And I know the power of changing your metabolic health and the, the, the importance of mitochondria. I think, at the base of all of these lifestyle diseases is mitochondrial dysfunction to some degree or another, and this is the the unifying sort of um, factor in all of these diseases. When you you know you're talking about different diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis and cancer, but what do they all have in common? Is dysfunction on that mitochondrial level? Would that be fair to say? And um, you're very fair to say that, uh, Lisa. Yeah, I think in medicine we. I th- I
1: look at disorders now as icebergs. Like in medicine, we tend to look at the top of the iceberg, this part you can see. And we, so you take a disorder such as uh, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, and you get the um, memory problems in Alzheimer's. You get the movement problems in Parkinson's, and so on. So we try to treat those with drugs. And as long as the drugs mitigate or improve those, we feel like we've done a good job. However, we haven't really treated the whole ninety percent of the iceberg that you can't see. And the deeper you go. I think that is where you get into the more, uh, metabolic, uh, sort of side of things. And at the bottom of the, of those icebergs for, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you on most of these disorders now is mitochondria dysfunction. Why can't we see this? Why can't, I mean, a lot of doctors know that mitochondria dysfunctional and a lot of these disorders, um, not, not all of them. Many, many don't, but uh, a, a fair number do. I think we don't appreciate mitochondria enough we, we still have this antiquated view that they are mainly at just a powerhouse of the cell however if you look at what mitochondria do they actually coordinate all kinds of things they actually coordinate the cells in my perspective i see them as sort of the fundamental unit of life rather than the cell they uh, you know they undergo biosynthesis they make things molecules They are responsible for producing uh, steroid hormones. They strongly influence neurotransmitters, which is how cells, neurons in particular, communicate with each other. They determine when the cell lives or dies. So they're in control of, uh, you know, programmed cell death. They actually coordinate the expression of the genes. That's epigenetic uh, expression. So they determine sort of which genes are turned on and off. They do all these things. And and yet we still have this really old view that they are powerhouses and Mm. and that's all they do. Yes, they make almost all the energy crucial. However, they do a lot of other crucial things. And I think as we um, learn more about mitochondria, in the upcoming years, we're going to start appreciating that mitochondrial dysfunction is at the core of virtually all our lifestyle disorders. And those are, that is the bulk of what is killing us today.
0: Yeah. And these mitochondria, I mean, these are ancient bacteria that back in the primordial soup, so to speak, um, became symbiotic with us and we have a relationship. They're not even human DNA. Then they have their own DNA, don't they? As as opposed to
1: our... Exactly. Yeah. I mean... Uh, So that's the life has been around on this planet for maybe 4 billion years. uh, And the uh, going theory is that around 2 billion years ago, give or take, uh, there was this endosymbiosis thing where these two ancient lineages, one was, uh, you know, sort of uh, archaea and the other was this sort of uh, prototypical bacteria and the archaea was sort of, uh, more similar to the cells we're made of nowadays. And, and it engulfed the bacteria like one. And the bacteria became mitochondria and, and the bigger cell, the archaea became sort of, uh, you know, the host for this thing. And, and together they formed this eukaryotic cell, which is the kind of cell that we're all made of now, multi, uh, complex life forms. And, um, yeah, the, the idea is that the archaea engulfed the bacteria-like uh, cell. However, I see it as the bacteria-like cell took over the function of the archaea cell. So, and, and if you look at that, then you say, okay, cells are not in charge of the mitochondria. Mitochondria are in charge of the cells, to put it in a very simplistic way. yeah. And it's that shift in perspective that's crucial. Without the shift, you can't actually really understand all the nuances of the metabolic um machinery and what what these disorders might be at their core and, and what might be a better way to treat them.
0: Yeah, and this I mean this opens the the door to like the uh in the cancer world the somatic mutation theory has been the the dominant theory since the well, what 50s or something. Um oh, you know if we five go right years, back, actually yeah. Yeah, like when we if we go back to Otto Warburg back in the 1920s 30s who won the Nobel prize and uh was we were on the right track. <laughs> the Warburg effect and, and, uh, um, and that, that sort of side of the theory of, of cancer is it lost its way when we sort of discovered DNA and what it does and the genetic yes. side of things. And for the last 50, 60 years, however long this is now, we've been spending billions of dollars and huge amounts of clinical research into the genetic mutations that are involved with cancer. As opposed to looking at, um, is it the mitochondria that have gone awry first? That you know, the dysfunction in the mitochondria causing the genetic mutations, and of course, uh, Professor Seyfried's work and others who have done these, um, you know, trans. Uh, how 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 do you explain that that um, experiment the where they took the nuclear? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Explain that a little bit because that's I always get it bound backwards when I try to explain it, but. Um, yeah, oh, well, basically, really uh, yeah, these are experiments that have been done
1: uh, by several groups around the world. Uh, they're called cybrid experiments, where you take a nucleus from a normal cell and uh, you put it in the side of you, you put it into a cancer cell that's had its nucleus removed, and vice versa, you take the nucleus of a cancer cell and put it into a normal cell that's had its nucleus removed, and what you find. When you do these uh, cybrid experiments, so you transfer nucleus or, or mitochondria, uh, uh, sorry, nucleus or a cytoplasm between normal or cancer cells and, and uh, to create these things called cybrids, which are like hybrid cells. And what you find is uh, that it's the cytoplasm and therefore presumably the mitochondria that determine whether the cell uh, stays normal or becomes cancerous almost all the time rather than the nucleus which implies is, strongly that the cause of cancer is somehow uh, tied to the cytoplasm and ergo the mitochondria.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is a massive philosophical shift because we're, we're going after the the target of this, you've got this genetic mutation, therefore we, we're going to go after this. And, and when you actually look, um, the genetic mutations are there, but they've come as a, a follow-on. They're further down the, the the chain, and when you can look at a, at a tumor, they can have different mutations on different parts of the tumor, and then metastases That's can the be different. That's
1: actually. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. So it's not like you're you're sort of like a whack-a-mole type of approach. You're trying to fix these mutations rather than going a little bit further upstream and going, hey, if 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 we used fasting in the keto diet, for example, are we going to uh, create some change in the mitochondria and the energy production and then influence that from a different perspective. Can you give us a, that, that shift in mentality, like the, 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 and the great leap that this is for the oncology world? You know, like this is a, a major paradigm shift and that's why we're having such a hard time shifting the ship,
1: really. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll talk about cancer a bit, I guess. So, um, Yes, the somatic mutation theory states that the nucleus gets these genetic mutations damaged for various reasons over many years. And then these mutations, some of them control the growth of the cell, and then the cell loses its ability to control its growth and becomes a cancer cell. that just keeps dividing. Um, And the alternative theory is that the problem is not the genetic mutations per se. It's mitochondria damage and dysfunction. If they're in charge of coordinating cell growth, which I think they are, then damage to them over many years from various different sources eventually means they can't control the cell anymore. And then mutations acquire mostly at random because the cell needs really good energy, optimized energy in order to keep repairing mutations. Mutations occur all the time, the cell just, you know, they get repaired. So you get these random mutations and maybe somehow, uh, The cancer state arises from that. Now, some of the mutations I don't think are random. I think, uh, I, uh, you know, some of them are are not. And the reason for that is interesting. And we could speculate. I think what happens is, again, going back to that evolution, you know, first two billion years of life, cells were, um, the archaea, anyways, they didn't have their little mitochondria inside them. They were, Dividing and growing in these primitive oceans constantly, and almost kind of like cancer cells do today. And you know, I see that uh, cancer as uh, you get such mitochondria damage that eventually the mitochondria can't control the cell anymore, and the the genetics uh, programs for that ancient archaea state are still there. They're just written over. uh, I think this is called the atavistic hypothesis of cancer, Mm -hmm. and. So if the mitochondria are damaged, then you get these uh, ancient programs reactivating, these old genes reactivating that can actually create the cancer uh-huh. state too. Wow. And so some of those are, are you know, those are not random. Uh, a lot of those, they are sort of there and they get activated because uh, the mitochondria are so damaged they can no longer con- coordinate the cell properly. So I think uh-huh. that's a possibility here. So it's partly random mutations, and maybe partly not. But anyways, the idea is that if you want to stop all this from happening, you don't uh, try to fix the mutations because they are, as you say, a downstream effect of this whole process, mostly. Uh, Well, they are. Whether they're random or not, they're a downstream effect. If you can improve the mitochondria function and heal them up, restore their function, then you might be able to just stop this whole process in its tracks. Now, some cells would be so far gone, their mitochondria is so damaged, they're highly malignant. I, you know, you have to take them out, destroy them. And this is why I'm actually, unlike, uh, you know, a huge respect for Thomas Seafried and, and a lot of these other guys. Absolutely. However, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not necessarily against the standard treatments, mm. uh, because they are good at killing highly malignant cells. The, mm. the problem with those standard treatments is they hurt a lot of other things mm. and the metabolic therapies can come in there and help, uh, sort of restore mitochondria function in uh, normal cells, maybe cancer cells that aren't too far gone. They can protect normal cells from the standard treatments, the chemo radiation. And uh, of course they make life difficult for cancer cells because uh, as you said, they rely on the Warburg effect. They rely on glucose fermentation. Uh, So lots of their energy comes from glucose and fasting and ketogenic diet therapies, of course, knock down the glucose levels. So yeah, I think there's such a, a huge um theory underpinning all of this it's evolutionary it's mechanistic but the real key to it all is sort of looking at the theory of cancer the somatic mutation theory of cancer and going does that make a lot of sense compared to this other competing theory this upstart theory this mitochondrial metabolic theory and if you look at it objectively i mean remember i was schooled for years in somatic mutation and mm. and, and i was not uh against it when i finished my neurology training, but if you look at it obje- if I look at it objectively now, and that's difficult because of the work I've been doing, but I th- I think the mitochondrial mutation, uh, metabolic one makes a heck of a lot more sense. Mm. So anyways, I, I've, uh, just, I'm, you know, I'm trying to design, uh, studies and doing this current, uh, glioblastoma trial now based on the lines of that second theory to see if we can help these people live better yeah. and live longer.
0: Yeah. And then, and, you know, glioblastoma is one of the worst. Things you could possibly ever get a diagnosis for, an absolute disastrous, horrible thing. Um, And I mean, I I heard you say in one of your lectures, I look at results, clinical results, then I look at the facts, then I look at the expert advice, (laughs) the expert opinion. And I thought, yeah, damn, that's me. You know, like (laughs) what's actually working in the. With the people and, and I know one thing that really resonated me, with me with your story too is that you're an N of one. You've, you've gone out, you've experienced the things that you're asking people to do, uh, yes. on your own body and you've, you've, you've nuanced us and finessed us and, and experienced what it's like to do the fasting. Cause we're going to get into fasting and the ketogenic diet in a minute, because that's where we're going with how we fix these mitochondria, um, to see what it actually does on your body. And to feel the effects, and I think that's a real, you know, hallmark of someone who is actually really standing behind what they're, uh, they're 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 looking at and actually really doing. And it's not easy to fast. I mean, I'm struggling with it, you know, um, to do longer fasts. I find it very, very difficult. Um, more psycho- psychologically difficult than physically difficult. Yeah. Um, psychologically. And I find, you know, working with lots, I work with a lot of cancer clients and help coordinate and get them under the right people and do that sort of work. Um, and it's the behavioral change that is the, is a tough thing when you start talking fasting and ketogenic diets. It's a, for a start, a massive education, um, piece. That you're required to do when you're, you're, you're working with someone. I'm, you know, just trying to change maybe 50, 60 years of programming that you should get up every morning and have your week books and your bowl of cereal yep. and your, and your milk and, and your coffee with two sugars on it. And that's a breakfast is the most important part of the day. And all, all of that programming that we get brainwashed with every day, the, the, the adverts on the television and all of that sort of jazz. And then shifting that, but they and people think that that's a healthy diet. So you ask someone, "Do you eat healthy?" And they go, "Yeah, I eat healthy. You know, I have my weekbooks, and I have my..." I'm not picking on weekbooks, by the way. I'm just saying this is just general. All of those sort of carb-based, high-carb processed foods, grains, and things like Um, that—it's a big paradigm shift in getting people to educate them. And this is why I do these podcasts because these interviews are coming from the experts explaining it a hell of a lot better than I can to my clients. Right. (laughs) So I can get, go and listen to this (laughs) and then we'll talk. Um, because it is a big shift in paradigm thinking for a starter. massive. And I'm like, I'm constantly shocked, you know, working with people who are diabetic, got cancer, um, and uh other, other ailments maybe, and nobody has explained to them what happens with high blood sugar. Nobody's explained insulin resistance or diabetes or what actually goes on in the cell, not even to the, the basic degree. And they don't understand any of these concepts. And to me, that is criminal. You know, like this is where... Why, why are we not taking the time to explain to people? And I know a lot of, a lot of doctors and things are just rushed off their feet, overwhelmed, overworked, yeah. and they don't have the yeah. time. And this is where I think health coaches have a place in the world. Um, but to, to not tell someone because they're not going to do it anyway is not a really good, um, you know, like that's up to the person to decide. And you need to give them the, the science behind why I'm asking you yeah. to do this. And That's an education piece, and that takes time. Why do you think there's such well, a well, it comes down to that? Uh,
1: I don't know if you read a beastie code by Jason Fung, but in, he I starts Jason it out Fung's by saying, it, Why yeah. are there overweight doctors? <laughs> and he says, Either basically they don't know how to not be overweight or they don't care, and uh, that was an interesting comment when I read it many years ago. I, I think most doctors don't know, uh, and if yeah i think most doctors are very caring almost all my you know doctors yeah, i've met absolutely. are extremely caring it's just that they don't um know uh the, you know the bottom of the iceberg these deeper things that allow you to really maybe um achieve health rather than try to make people uh, better on a superficial level and um, yeah, yep in medicine we are extremely busy we're rushed off our feet mm. as you say
0: Oh well, and
1: uh, there's other things. Life gets in the way. There's uh, other uh, things to do, and and the system is very busy now. It's even worse since COVID. Yeah, but uh, yeah, if uh, if you don't, uh, if you understand them, if if you understand them fully, the metabolic therapies, fasting, keto diets, then I I believe you would do it yourself. Uh, there's no reason not to, and I and I know that's a strong statement, um, and I'm not same people that um are in the keto sphere or metabolic sphere that don't do them are hypocrites or anything however if you really believed it that it was helpful you do it at least try it and give it an honest effort and yeah i i think that's been very powerful in getting um my patients to do these things like i've been doing i'm straight up keto fasting over seven years now and um wow. yep yep i do one meal a day pretty pretty religiously one meal a day now I used to sneak in 2 meal uh days but that's very rare now and uh yeah still do the multi-day fast every couple months feel great it's the kind of thing you just get better and better and feel better so the first couple of years of the fast yes they're they're harder right it's a whole horm- hormesis thing yeah um, but as you as you do it it gets easier and um i think in terms of getting people to do it uh is explain things mechanistically as you said that's very important however It's crucial to understand, to to not just explain the how, but the why you'd want to do this. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to do we eat once a day and fast? And when you start understanding that physiological ketosis is actually our normal evolutionary state, that this is a state that people around the world, regardless of culture, race, whatever, we're in most of the time that, um, for, for two to three million years of our evolution, and that what we do now is the aberration. It's not normal. If you can help someone see that flip, that actually what everyone else is doing is not normal, and this is just returning to something that's more normal when cancer was very rare in our hunter-gatherer societies, extremely rare, uh, then you're just uh, resurrecting a, a, an ancient state that we can all do that maybe is really a lot healthier. Then then if you can get that light bulb moment, then uh, the person's internal enthusiasm takes hold and people are awesome. Almost every patient uh wants to get better than I've met. Yes, there are some that don't want to get better, uh which, you know, you come across people like that for various reasons, but most people want to get better. They just don't know how. It's not that they don't care. They don't know how. And if you can be be that guide and help them. To discover that sort of inner spark, that inner enthusiasm, which you already, you've, you know, you, you were born with and you've never lost. <laughs> uh, you've never let anyone stamp it out. But uh, a lot of people that get sort of stamped out and, and they get, they listen to, you know, the, the, um, experts. Some experts are great. Some are not. And then, you know, over time, uh, you start doing what everyone else is telling you to do. And uh, it's really about trying to help people question everything and think, well, what is healthy? What is not healthy? You've got this tumor. So clearly something maybe isn't right. Can we correct this? I think we can. Maybe this is the way. That's, yeah, it's, we need more of that in medicine. And it's, it's about doctors being guides. Uh, and I really think um, we're some, we're still struggling with that concept that we're guides. I'm not here to tell anyone what to do yeah. at all. I'm here to offer options and say, this is one option, this is one option, this is one option. And then if I say, oh, a long fast is an option. If a patient goes, that's crazy, then I I am able to say, well, I might be doing one right now. I'm on day four of a fast or whatever. So it's not that crazy.
0: Just interrupting the show to let you know about our patron community here and the podcast at Pushing the Limits. We've been going for eight years and we really need your support to keep the show on air and free to everybody so that everyone gets this fantastic information uh, from all these great doctors, scientists, athletes, business people from all around the world. So we would love you to come and join us. You get a lot of exclusive member benefits when you do, but really it's about supporting the show and keeping it on air and for a coffee or two a month. That would be fantastic if you can come and join us. You can go to com. That's com, and check it all out. We have this fear that, because we're... Again, we're trained and we're also conditioned. And part of our evolutionary path is to seek out food, right? Because we didn't have enough. It wasn't on every street corner. And we would go for the high calorie. That's why we like sweets. That's why we like, uh, you know, high calorie foods. And, and of course, the big food marketing has, uh, industry has utilized it and, uh, you know, they, they're making profits. You know, that's their job is to make profits, but you have to understand that it's made to get you addicted. It's made to tap onto those pathways that are, that, that are going to drive you to eat not one chip, but the whole packet of chips once you start. Um, you know, all of those things, they've very carefully studied how to do that. And and your your powerless, you know, like your evolutionary self is sort of driven to do that, and so you have to really sort of dial that back. And I think stepping people into that lifestyle change, and I I'd love to get your take on things like exogenous ketones and MCT oils and uh, ketone esters and things like that, which I use um, to help people. M- you know, migrate out of that glucose dependent state into a more flexible state to make it an easier transition on occasion, depending on the person, obviously, Um, but to help them get into that without, so they don't have the massive cravings that, you know, because nobody's got the willpower to withstand some of these evolutionary forces that are within us, you know, with that, once you get started on something, it's, I mean, sugar is as addictive as they say, as cocaine. Um, just trying to transition them out of that, that state first and, and then slowly work into the fasting and stuff. And, and then you've got the psychological. And like, this is, you know, I'll be honest, this is an area that I've struggled with as a, as a teenager. I had um, anorexia, bulimia and things like that when I was young. And so I'm very cautious with myself as to how I approach things because I do everything to the extreme. in my sport, in the, in my life, and my thing. So I, you know, I I'm a little bit more careful on how I approach things. So I think there's also a, a conversation to be had. How do you um you know, there are certain people that shouldn't be fasting, you know, pregnant mothers, for example, maybe not, or the elderly population needs to probably have a protein sparring sort of a option uh, built into that. So there's more nuance again to this conversation as to how we approach things so that we don't tip people into anorexia, for example. Um, You know, what's your, you know, your take on, on that sort of a thing. Okay. Um,
1: that's probably well i would say uh with reference to the uh it's quite a lot there (laughs) yeah yeah the uh exogenous ketones and everything i'm up for whatever works i i don't i'm not biased against any treatments uh whatever works and gets you that result because as you say results over facts over expert opinion it's results that matter so um that being said i'm very pro-evolutionary i'm basically essentially trying to aim for uh Physiological ketosis as a sort of ancient metabolic, evolutionarily metabolic state that we're supposed, we're supposed to be in most of the time when we perform better, that heals our mitochondria. And that's the goal with these disorders. Now, um, ketones are just that uh, a small part of that. So a lot of that, you know, when you're healing up the mitochondria, you know, all those functions I mentioned they did earlier about controlling the genes and controlling your steroid hormones and controlling the cell fates and all these things that you're, you're aiming for all that stuff. So you, you do keto diets and fasting protocols to heal your mitochondria and optimize your health because health is optimized mitochondria function to my perspective. So, uh, ketones is a small part of that. So if you're dumping in exogenous ketones, to my mind, that's not that will have some benefits on your mitochondria, but not the big, uh, you know, the big, uh, capital B benefits that we're really looking for. So, um, using it as a bridge to get into a more natural, uh, physiological state of physiological ketosis, no problem, do it. Um, I don't use them at all in my patients, the reasons for those reasons, but also, um, It's uh, a lot of patients can't uh, money matters for some people. So uh, one of the things I really love about the fasting and keto diet protocols, if you combine them and do them correctly, is it actually ends up being cost effective for people and fasting. Definitely. There's no barrier, no socioeconomic barriers to fasting, which is great. A lot of these drugs, uh, you know, we could talk about cancer. Uh, yes, I I have to admit a lot of those drugs are extremely pricey. Mm. Uh, you know, and a lot of people just cannot afford that. So I like that. Um, but I guess that would be my main answer to that question of yours is that I'm trying to resurrect this natural state, uh, of physiological ketosis that is aimed at helping the mitochondria, which I believe are the problem when it comes to cancer and, the neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and I think atherosclerosis, heart disease, and, and all the lifestyle disorders. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like with, um, ketones as well as it's, um, you, you get some clients that, uh, have got complicated histories and they're on drugs that can prohibit them getting into a ketotic state naturally and that can be also um you know a little bit problematic. Um how do you deal with those sort of situations when you've got someone on, say, um, you know, one of the steroid steroids because they've got GBM or something like that and they can't yeah, get so ketosis I mean we're getting into the That's, weeds
1: now. <laughs> that's right. No, so we're doing this glioblastoma trial now where we've got um a bunch of people now, um, doing a very intensive fasting and keto diet protocol. Uh, basically it's the most intensive that I've, I've known, of that I know of in any advanced cancer ever wow. in a large group of people, like more than N of one. And, uh, you know, our the first patient in the trial is out to almost two years. Uh, we have a pilot patient that's almost out to three years. Wow. So steroids i'm fine prednisone is the hardest thing for me to uh marry with the metabolic program um Mm -hmm. the protocol is timed with the chemo and radiation no problem um as i said i i favor those because they are good at what they do and i'm about all about i'm all about the middle road lisa so i'm not Mm -hmm. just mainstream i'm certainly not just alternative but i think trying to marry them in a logical, rational sense is where yep. we're going to have success. And yeah. that's a pretty lonely road, I got to say. So, But that's what we're trying to do. Now, when it comes to the steroids, uh, they use the steroid called uh, dexamethasone, actually, mm-hmm. in, in glioblastoma. Yep. Now, mm-hmm. the steroid has, um, is used when people get weak or get seizures because of swelling around the tumor. Mm-hmm. And the swelling can happen because the tumor is growing, but it can also happen when the tumor is dying. It's inflamed and it's getting killed. So it's always hard to say when someone gets worse in terms of weakness or a speech problem or a seizure, is that a good thing or a bad thing in the Mm long-term? So the standard approach is to give the steroids, the dexamethasone, because it gets rid of the swelling. And no matter what the cause of the swelling, the person will get better within a few days. Now, so so dexamethasone is great short-term because it gives you that function back Mm -hmm. for a while. The problem is in the long-term, as you know it, jacks up your blood glucose levels knocks down your blood ketone levels and if the metabolic theory of cancer is correct which i believe it is then okay. you're possibly uh getting a short-term gain for long-term feeding the tumor more and helping it more down the road that's my concern so um if you're just looking at the top of the iceberg and you're just looking at things I don't want to say superficially, but I will. I just said yep. it. Yep. Um, then using more steroid than you need is okay, right? Uh, as if I if I'm a, a doctor and I uh, an oncologist, then I don't know the metabolic theory. I don't think it's right. Then it, there's no barrier to using high doses of steroids. You can use them because you know, sugar doesn't matter anyways to the tumor, ah. <laughs> but from a metabolic perspective, you want to use just as much steroid as you need and no more to get that person better and then get them off the steroid as soon as you can, as soon as the mm. fluid, the edema is gone. So this is the one that I, I have the hardest time with because I'm always yeah. trying to, uh, yeah. I can't inv- get too involved in the standard of care ethic. Mm. You know, it's just not the right thing to do. I'm supposed to mm. be doing the metabolic side of things. The oncologists are doing the standard of care and the, my oncologist colleagues are awesome and allowing me to do this trial. Wow, yeah. So, That's but exciting. it is difficult because, you know, I, I can sort of nudge them and say, is it possible to get steroid dose down a bit, yeah. you know, <laughs> and a couple of times I might've taken it a little too far, you know, because I feel quite strongly about it. Mm. However, and not all oncologists are as uh, interested in the metabolic trial as others. So it's difficult. There's a lot of politics in it, but mm. um that would be the hardest thing I'm finding in terms of uh, trying to marry the the sort of standard medications with the metabolic uh, therapy. Other than that, no issues with any other meds, actually. Um, It's awesome. To be honest, you know, we're able to usually reduce the seizure medications because fasting and keto diets are really great against seizures. Um, I don't worry uh, about, uh, you know, most of the other medications. They, They might influence the metabolic therapy a little bit, but, I'm all about the big picture.
0: No, no, this is, this is uh, so, so much, yeah, a fantastic conversation and, and, you know, kudos to you for getting this study up and, uh, because we, when, when I go to the, you know, the oncologist with mom, they're telling her to eat a pudding on the way out the door, you know, like, oh, Isabel, you've lost a couple of kilos. We better get you uh, some pudding on the way home, please. And I'm like, mum just looks at me and goes, yeah, I wish. <laughs> you know, she's the weight like,
1: loss is another thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, the pathologic weight loss versus healthy weight Correct. loss. Um, Correct. And, and on that point, how do you deal when you've got a really um, – you know, a uh, lean, fragile, uh, person doing a fasting yep. protocol. How do you manage that side of things? Because that is, you know, you're going to lose weight on this diet for a starters and it's healthy weight loss as opposed to the pathological type, but it's yeah. still weight loss in somebody who's small and losing weight. Okay. So we've got,
1: uh, we've had, uh, okay. So, not one patient in this trial has yet been unable to do their five-day fast. And each patient undergoes an av- average of eight to 14 five-day fasts. So it's wow. a lot. Yeah. Now, some of those patients are thin. They're not all overweight. The average patient in the trial is uh, high overweight, almost obese, but wow. some are not. Um, what you find is when you do the fast, first of all, uh, they can't get as high ketone levels in general, being thinner, because that makes sense. There's less access to body fat and so on. Um, But you find they also lose less weight Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: uh, especially once a person is uh, fat adapted, keto adapted, like several months into the program, the weight loss, even for a five day fast is very small. I've got a couple of uh, women who are older women, um, you know, BMI is around 20, 21, 22. So low, normal, but normal. They lose about a kilogram on a five day fast, which to me. I, 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 I still kind of can't believe it that they only lose that much. Yeah. But they only lose that much. They're so fat adapted. Uh, I guess that that they and they're already small people, but they don't lose that much. Mm-hmm. So I, what you find is, with, whereas someone who's overweight, especially if it's their first couple fasts, they'll I lose know, five off. six kilograms. Yeah. So on, on a single fast. So it's a uh, it's mo- it's really about a metabolic reset. Where re- I like to think. I hope I'm not deluding myself that we're resetting the health of these people. And that includes a normal body mass index. And, uh, you know, exactly, exactly as you say, sort of the eradication of the success insulin resistance and, um, nice physiological levels of ketosis, you know, around one, two, three, nothing crazy, but, uh, for, for the keto diet, fast, it will go higher and so on. And, um, You know, a reset means you get to normal. You don't go underweight and into uh, scary levels of low weight. And that's what we're finding. Despite this really intensive protocol, that's what's happening. So I think the oncologists at my hospital are now been uh, reassured enough That this is uh, what's happening and it is intentional weight loss, as you say. Yeah. Not unintentional. Unintentional is bad. That usually means you've got um, cancer cachexia and the body is inflamed and the cancer is really um, getting a little out of control. And that's not what we're seeing.
0: No. And that's actually, this is, you know, this is the thing that people think. They just equate weight loss with the cancer is getting bigger and it's it's you yeah. know, where they this is healthy weight loss. The cachexia is a bad weight loss. That is when and the more the cancer grows, the the more doors yeah. it opens up on its cell to intake all the glucose and it's gonna suck you dry. I mean, it's gonna take yeah. all your energy and 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 it then it will grow and then you will lose weight, you know, and then it is bad weight loss. And this yeah. is trying to get that concept over into the, you know, into, through to oncologists and to doctors that this is, you know, good versus bad, that pathological versus. Well, it's the bad.
1: perceptual mind shift again. If you're not trying to lose weight, weight loss is bad. If yeah. you're trying to maintain weight, weight loss is bad. But if you suddenly embrace the opposite perspective and go, intentional weight loss is good, and you go for that, and that's the goal. Now it's good, right? So it it depends on your, again, I always come back to the perception of what is good, what is bad, what is disease, what is health. And it, if we want to correct things and really take this whole field forward, I believe it's about helping people alter perceptions one at a time and making sure we don't force it onto people because my perceptions might be screwed up. <laughs> right. Yeah. I might be looking at this talk 10 years from now. All going, right. Gosh, I can't believe I said all that stuff, you know, <laughs> but it's really about uh, examining your own perceptions, your own biases, and then helping if you really think, you know, it's nice to have some evidence. Um, If you really think that this can help someone, you go for it. You work together. You don't push it on people ever. You act as a guide and and then let see if amazing things can happen. That's that's the way to do it. I think Um I, I see no other way. You can't push it on people. Otherwise, you're just, you know, enforcing stuff that, you know, uh, enslaving them to, the, to your mindset. But you can't just have a great idea that you think might work and say nothing, because then you're, you're not giving, you know, you're being neutral. And, uh, you know, we all know, you know, best thing is a great decision. Second best thing is a bad decision. Worst thing is no decision. No decision. So, yeah, yeah. yeah that's the <laughs> approach.
0: You know, if we look at sort of, you know, I've heard one of your lectures talk about germ theory and, you know, that we've gone after the lifestyle diseases, the Alzheimer's, cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all of those things with that germ theory mindset that we're going after a target. Alzheimer's, we're going after the amyloid plaques, we're, we're going to rip them out. Um, that's, you know, I had Dr. Dale Bredesen on a couple of weeks ago. Um, who's yeah, wonderful, wonderful, um, guy. And, and, you know, he's like, you know, just coming in with a drug that I've spent billions on in the clinical research to get rid of the amyloid plaques is a very oversimplistic. It's a, it's a response of the body. And uh, can actually cause more harm by ripping, being ripped out, and causing bleeding and all sorts of things. He said, um, and it's it, it, he he likens it to you know a thirty-six holes in a roof that we're trying to plug, and we need to be looking at fixing all of the holes in the roof, not just going after the simplistic view. We've we've developed a drug to fix Alzheimer's, you know. We've developed a drug to kill cancer. Just, just kill and, uh, one's pill will fix the world approach. And in my, you know, very biased and very limited, um, experience is not the way program approach is the way that I've had success is with, um, it, with with plugging that hole then that hole then that hole then that hole and then where's the next thing that i can improve and constantly having a, a mindset of there's even there's more out there there's more out there there's more out there that i have to learn so just being an insatiable sponge for information and then processing it and then starting to connect the dots and then hopefully putting together a good plan to move forward um and in and, and you make mistakes you know like Uh, definitely when I look back at some of the things that I've done with mum over the last eight years, I'm like, Oh my God, you know, what was I thinking? That's where you Um, learn the most. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's a hard way to learn sometimes for, especially for the person. but Mm -hmm. um, but she's still alive to tell the tale, you know, um, had miraculous recoveries again and again and again. I mean, stroke, aneurysm, a dozen concussions, uh, and brain cancer, you know, a CNS lymphoma. Um, that, that's a pretty, that's a pretty hard thing in your seventies and eighties, by the way, not in your thirties yeah. and forties, <laughs> you know, like up against it, talk about up against it. Um, and, and, you know, how long we'll succeed, I don't know, but I just go with, you know, well, we're aiming for 120 and that's, that's, I'm an ultra marathon runner, right? I'm going to take on big goals and go hard and go for the big, you know, and, and we may fail along the way and we're all going to die at some point. Um, but I think that approach of hope, vision, you know, and this is the whole spiritual side of things that I, you know, I think is also very important or the the mental side, the, the holding of a vision, the belief that you can get better, all of those are part of the, the way I approach things. When I'm working with someone, if I can hold a vision for them, of them seeing themselves well, and then get them to 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 maybe I can because they've been beaten down, like they've had a hundred people tell them there's no there's no you know um, there's not a good outcome here or there's there's nothing that can be done. And oh, you know, I have had a debate with the head of the medical council. He said, "Aren't you making false hope?" And I said, "Well, aren't you taking all hope?" You know, and I it's yeah. a philosophical difference in the way we think. I think is that to me, life is very precious and we fight we fight you know like i fight <laughs> every day i'll fight for for life because um you 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 want to give it every shot you know you want to know that you've left nothing on the table that could have been done that's that's my my very extreme mindset approach i suppose and that's not the approach for everybody and certainly but that's the way i approach it with my mum who's my you know under my care um, is, 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 is holding that vision for her. And, you know, like, you're going to get well, mum. You are going to drive the car again. You are going to get your life back. And she's aiming every day at that goal because when you've got somewhere to aim for, you're more likely to get there. And I think that's a part of a big, um, you know, part of this uh, protocol or wh- whatever you want to call it, this program of getting well, um, you know, is, is a piece of that, that sort of puzzle. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to balance. Um, I mean, you clearly are have gone through a lot yourself as well with helping her and still going through it. Yep. Um, it's really hard to balance that, uh, no hope versus false hope.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: because obviously A, A and B are both bad options, <laughs> but it doesn't mean, uh, you have to limit the thinking to a and b and as soon as we dichotomize things and get into uh us versus them that's where uh deconstructive things occur I- i've found mm-hmm. and uh i'll be the Gosh. first to admit my first year of starting this a few years ago in the hospital i was all full of uh fire and vinegar <laughs> like nice like <laughs> at this point and um yeah but i would get into uh arguments with uh Heads of endocrinology and, and oncologists and so on. And it was not constructive. It was not going to go anywhere. So there are other options. It's not a false hope or, or no hope. It's um, hope with a plan and yeah. recognizing as long as the person, the patient, recognizes that success is not guaranteed, that they are a pioneer, that Absolutely. they are trying something that doesn't have the evidence behind it. If it did, the uh, standard of care would incorporate it. And uh, that's another problem, by the way, we, we still lack really good evidence in, can- in these therapies in cancer. And that's why I'm really focusing on, on trying to do good clinical trials. We need the evidence before we can actually convince uh, my excellent uh, colleagues, uh, most of them. So, uh, yeah, it's about having hope and a plan, recognizing that um, the hope is absolutely crucial, as you say, that vision of hope, but a good workable plan that makes sense on a mechanistic and evolutionary ideally level Mm. and just taking it forward and focusing on process over outcome yes we all want the great outcome but it's the process that the day by day doing this every day whatever it is that's what wins the game As as you would know in your Mm. training i'm sure um if you focus on where you're going to be a year from now you might get uh you'll just lose focus maybe it's just the next step is the yeah. most important step. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. the 1000th step or the 1 millionth step or the, you know, the one you did 10 steps ago, it's the next one. Yeah. And, um, so psychology is everything. And if you can help people understand that, if they accept that, then it's all good. And the oncologist, uh, it, or, or doc, uh, standard doctor might say, well, it, the, the, anyone who says that you're giving." um, False hope um, I would say is um, is the rare person in that city and if they if they see the patient has accepted it on that level and that you 're not trying to give them false hope, like saying, "Oh, try this when there 's no evidence for it, and you don 't really know anyone that's done it and it's or you read about it on somewhere on the internet because there's a lot of false information on the internet oh yeah um, then then that's when they get worried and but if you can say oh look there's some evidence here there 's some mechanistic theoretical basis. the person understands there's no guarantees. I'm going to help them. They're going to help themselves. Let's go for it. Can you support us? Almost pretty much everyone does, and uh, that avoids the whole us versus them. You know, A or B. Okay. Let's go for option C and 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 go for it together. That's the best.
0: Wouldn't it be? It, it great requires enough. a lot
1: of um, psychology, and and uh, I, I've got to say, it requires a lot of self work as well.
0: Yeah, I think. <laughs> There's a lot of maturity. Yeah. I'm still working on that piece.
1: <laughs> well. <laughs> it's difficult to sometimes things really, uh, throw you off center, but, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, emotional control being the master of your emotions is, uh, is really, really crucial at times.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, like if, if we step back a little bit into the, some of the, you know, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, neurodegeneration, dementias, Alzheimer's, um, cancer, in the 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 unifying thing is that that whole mitochondrial aspect and looking at um you know like how do we make the 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 chances less that people can develop these things how do we how do we stop it once it's started and when you say ketogenic diet um some people think that's butter bacon and pounding the you know um <laughs> um there's there's variations in the keto diet you know like what's your take on the variations you know like the vegan versus the carnivore sorry that's a question but yeah yeah.
1: no no it's fine so first of all that the term ketogenic diet or keto uh is not uh liked by a number of uh people in the uh metabolic community i would Mm -hmm say that it's been misused. So mm. you can go to the supermarket and find uh keto yeah. things that says keto on it. And there it's, it's missing the whole point. Mm. so it's, they, those people prefer to call them ketogenic metabolic therapies. Fair enough. Um, my interest in a ketogenic diet is that it's actually uh, the state I'm interested in. I want to re- resurrect that ancestral ketogenic phys- state of physiological ketosis where the mitochondria are um, optimized and healthy. And um, so it's a state we're after, and the diet is a way to get there. Fasting is the best way to get there. Now, the diet, in terms of the actual food one eats, can be carnivore. It can be vegetarian. It can be omnivore. It can be any cuisine you want. I've got patients on multiple cuisines. And uh, as long as they get into ketosis and they're not eating uh, uh, you know, uh, processed Stuff that, uh, like trans fats, for example, uh, that should not be part of a good keto diet. The closer the diet is to our pre-agrarian state, like non-agricultural state, probably the better. So, uh, Dr. Sophia Clemens would arguably have, have the claim to the best keto diet in that sense because she's hardcore pre-agrarian. So, uh, with her Paleolithic keto diet. So, so that's the ideal. And I think, um, if you just remember that keep the keto diet is aiming to achieve a state that restores your mitochondrial function. Then, you, if you can really understand that at a deep level, you can um, carry that forward and avoid all the the various uh, parking spaces and detours that might that might trap you. And uh, that's why you know weight loss is a side effect. It's a nice one for most people, but it's just a side effect. It indicates that you're resetting metabolic health, and that's really about it. Yeah, you look nicer but it's a side effect and there are a lot of other great side effects, but the aim is to get your mitochondria going. That's the way I see it.
0: Yeah. So let's go and talk a little bit about then um, mitochondria themselves and the structure of mitochondria, what mitochondria do. Like I've talked, I've heard you and this was sort of a new thing to me, like the fission and fusion of mitochondria and the biogenesis, yeah. and the mitophagy and, and the, you know, like, I know we're getting in some big words here, so hang with us, people. But um, <laughs> can you explain what happens when I, when I fast, what happens, you know, when I'm not eating yeah, yeah. and my body goes, well, oh, there's no glucose here. There's no, there's no yeah, carbs well, coming in. Okay,
1: so uh, it's an evolving area, remember. But I'm going to so, start a story. When I was a graduate student, when I was doing that physiology degree at the age of 23 in Queen's University in Canada, I remember we had a mitochondria expert in the biology department. I won't say his name. He's an awesome guy. Um, he showed me something under the microscope and said, I don't know what these parasites are in these cells. They're moving around. And then a couple days later, I, he showed me, and I, I don't know what those are. A couple days later, he came around to my lab and said, They were mitochondria. Huh? This was a mitochondria expert. What? Okay. <laughs> now, if he doesn't know what they look like in the flesh, then <laughs> how can you expect anyone else to? So, mitochondria are incredible, and we don't know. Sp- Forgive my language, we don't know squat about them. Yeah. There, there is so much we need to learn. So they are these tiny organelles, which means there are a little body inside the cell, and there are generally hundreds of them, or maybe thousands in most cells. There's very rare cells that don't have mitochondria later in life, such as reptile cells, but almost all of them have lots of these things. Mitochondria are typically thought of as bean-shaped. However, they can change their shapes. They can become more circular, long, and skinny. And yes, all these hundreds of mitochondria mitochondria as this mitochondria expert learned and i'm sure he knows a lot more now but but that they don't stay in one place sometimes they do but often they're moving around
0: right they're
1: so they're they're if you have a neuron some neurons are up to a meter long these cells these yes. are big cells wow yeah so the mitochondria are going up and down moving around they sometimes they got to get smaller to fit into the little nooks and crannies sometimes they got to get bigger when they want to do things so they constantly fuse undergo fusion, which is mitochondria coming together, or fission, which is mitochondria splitting uh, into smaller ones. Mitochondria uh, do this all the time. They're dynamic. They're moving around. They're like a life force. Now, they don't just sit in the cells. We now have just found out in recent years that they actually can move between cells. They can actually move from one cell to the other. And and that's- None of this stuff is what I learned about mitochondria I didn't in know that, the 1990s no. in, 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 Queens university and all my biology courses, right? Like they're, they're not static as you see in a picture. They're mobile. They're not confined to the cell necessarily. They, they, uh, and they are not just there to make energy. They are there to, in my opinion, my perspective is that I, I think they are there. Uh, they are running the show. So we talk about the gut microbiota, for example, fantastic thing. You know, there's lots of bacteria and viruses in our gut and so on. But even as impressive as that is, they say there's, you know, five to 10 times as many of them as there are cells in our body. But even that is utterly overshadowed by our mitochondria. If you look at our mitochondria, as a there, there's even a great paper that came up by a Canadian researcher, Martin Picard. Uh, I think it was, um, this year, it might have been last year, called uh, mitochondria Signal Transduction in Cell Metabolism." Awesome paper, and he sees the mitochondria as a collective processing unit that communicates with itself and communicates with the cells, and even allows interorgan communication throughout the body. So it's like its own processing unit that uh, d- does all all these things that we mentioned. So, wow, there's just so much we need to learn about them, and we keep focusing because of our perspective, our chosen perspective is to focus on cells. Let's look, learn about neurons. I learned a ton about neurons and muscle cells and cardiac cells and kidney cells and stuff in med school. I learned just a little, mitochondria was, was a oh yeah, you know, this little bit and that little bit. That's it. We did learn biochemistry, like the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain and all that stuff, which occurs in the mitochondria, but it was kind of disconnected from the idea that these mitochondria are actually moving around and coordinating the cell and doing all these things. So I think we're just learning a lot more about mitochondria as we learn about uh, the lifestyle disorders, because the mitochondria are the main problem, I think. I do not know, I think. But, but as we learn uh, more about them and start to have more success against these disorders with good clinical trials, then I think we will learn more and more and more in the decades to come.
0: Wow. Uh, my mind's blown. I didn't realize they could even go intracellular and, you know, hop into another cell. And so it's like, they've got their own little brain. <laughs> they seem to have their own consciousness and talk to each other and do things and tell collectively, send signals. Yeah, collectively. Yeah.
1: yeah. I see them as, uh, like if you looked at earth from a satellite or whatever, and you looked at a city, I, I'm just coming up with this now. Yeah. But you looked at all these houses and buildings and people running around inside them and sometimes going between them. You might think that earth was a collective of buildings. Mm. But, but a, really we know people. that the fundamental unit of whatever makes the city anyways is not in its buildings. It's in the people that make the buildings mm-hmm. and maintain them. Mm. And I think it, it just depends on your chosen perspective. And we've, for various historical reasons, chosen to view cells as the fundamental unit of life when it's probably not the case.
0: Wow! Yeah, and and, one of my yeah. great teachers was always, always talking Dr. Elizabeth Hueth, who uh, I absolutely love, and she's a top cellular health expert. But she's always talking about mitochondria at the basis of every pretty much not every, but pretty much every disease, you know? Yeah, like fix your mitochondria. Careful with the word always, so. <laughs> yeah, "always." Yeah, not always, so you should, but, but, you but, not always. But I know that. what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's at the basis, and and this is where it's so powerful because then you don't need necessarily to be a specialist in Parkinson's disease to have an effect by trying something safe ish, you know, like fasting or a keto diet and have an impact, you know, you're not, you're not asking someone to take a a really dangerous drug. You're asking them to eat less, less often and the right things and to try that. And this is an intervention that could have a massive impact on the, on the course of their 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 disease process or stop it and it. Yeah. you know um and you know like i've seen in, in the, the work that i've been doing quite a number of people who have been diabetic for 10-15 years are suddenly not diabetic when yes. we get them and it's not rocket science it's just understanding them understanding what's going on them starting to change their lifestyle and starting to eat correctly yeah. and hello, they're not dependent on their insulin anymore. And they understand that that's the gateway to all of those other things. You know, like it's it, it's understanding that when you have, um, when you are constantly, I had Dr. Ross Pelton on, he's a, a natural pharmacist, is his website, and he's written 13 books, I think. Um, his latest being on rapamycin, which was very interesting. Um, but he talks about, um, uh, where was I going with this? Um Oh, I've completely lost my train of thought. (laughs) Rocket science. It's not rocket science. Yeah, mTOR and AMPK. He said this is the most fundamental. If we can get people to grasp what mTOR and AMPK are and and how to manipulate mTOR and AMPK, uh, and this is the nuance of science has to work out, which is the bit, you know, what combination do we go? The hardcore always fasting route, and then you, you know, the calorie restriction society and the way they approach things, Heck and yeah. end up looking like a wizened yeah. prune, but you'll live for a long time. Yes. Or, uh, where is that nuance in that conversation, and and how do you turn on the mTOR, which is all the growth stuff, and then turn on the AMPK and the recycling and the, you know? Well, it is
1: a. I guess it's always a. It's about balance, isn't it? So you yeah. want a proper balance of mTOR and mPK so for people that don't know I guess the uh, mTOR mammalian target of rapamycin that generally is sort of uh, these are both master regulators of metabolism uh, mTOR and mPK Uh, so they sort of do opposite things mTOR kind of builds things up AMPK sort of breaks things down to put it very very basically so mTOR is essentially anabolic building the organism up AMPK is catabolic, breaking it down. And you know, uh organisms such as human adults that aren't supposed to grow or shrink not greatly have to have a balance of breaking up and building down, not just in space, but in time. So parts of the body might be building up or breaking down. And then at certain times you might want to build up and break down. And to me, it's all about the balance. And if you understand the balance then you can understand AMPK and uh, mTOR and AMPK because, and they are again mechanisms, but if you, it, so they're the how understand things at the why level always gets you there further. And so if, why is the balance so important? Because if, unless you're a pregnant uh, woman with a baby or you're a kid and you're supposed to grow or something like that, you know, those are not most people then, uh, then you don't, you want to be mainly anabolic. If you're overweight, as in a lot of fat mass, not muscle mass, but fat mass, or even some people with too much muscle mass, perhaps, then you want to be mainly catabolic to, to, and until you get reset. So what is a balance? Uh, what is, what the balance, what you're trying to achieve might be different depending on your starting point, but eventually you want to get a balance of anabolism, and catabolism. And so sometimes it might be good to grow. Sometimes it's good to eat. Sometimes it might be better to get smaller. Sometimes it's good to fast. And, That to me is the key, is is the balance that you're trying to achieve. But the balance isn't just about being gray. The balance is, as you said, it's about trying the extremes. You're oscillating between anabolism and catabolism. How do you learn about something the best? Not by taking the middle road. I I, I ride a motorcycle. That's all I ride. Riding down the middle of the road, I'll do it sometimes, but it's the least safe part of the road. (laughs) You want to balance, oscillate between two extremes to figure out to, to achieve that balance. It's the sum of, uh, anabolism and catabolism. Does that make, make sense? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of people think when they think balance, they think, Oh, great, boring, uh, you know, whatever being, uh, maybe calorie restricting and, you know, just having boring food, but no, it's about, uh, for, in the example of diet, we can apply this to anything in life, feast and fast. When you fast, do it yeah. properly. When you eat, eat like a lion.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah. And, and it is about what you're trying to achieve at that time. And when you have a disease process on, you want to be perhaps catabolic because we want to get rid of some stuff. Yes.
1: So if you have an uh, disease uh, disorder, I like to call them disorders because that's, yes. you know, goes to back to the whole germ versus terrain theory thing. Yeah. Uh, cancer, it's essentially, uh, you can look at it simplistically as excess anabolism. It's an out of control anabolic disorder. So we're trying to apply catabolic based therapies to, to try and, and achieve some kind of balance. There's more to it than that. But, you know, so uh, but you you can use that argument um, in any disorder, I think, uh, to an extent. So obesity would be um, I don't see that as a disorder. I see that as a response, but it's where you it's indicative of excess anabolism. And you want to try and uh, get catabolic based therapies to in order to correct that imbalance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's that's brilliant. So and and it's going in between of these things. So at some times yeah. when I'm trying to build muscle, um, I'm, you know, maybe eating a bit more protein, doing a bit more things for a certain period of time. Other times when I'm trying to get over a virus or something, then maybe I'm doing more of a clean out phase um and being more in AMPK and maybe even taking some supplements, or at least that's what I do, um, to help clear out that process um yes. w- but w- one thing i heard you talk about too was anti-fragile um oh. y- you mentioned a book um i've forgotten the title completely and who wrote it but it was something about being anti-fragile uh, and i thought yeah that's it we we, we want to make people anti-fragile can you explain a little bit what that, <laughs> what that was about sure
1: sure you'd love my friend uh, deborah murtaugh because she loves that concept too so uh, she's a nutritionist so uh, the book was called Anti-Fragile, and it was by a guy named Taleb, T-A-L-E-B. I can never remember his first name, but uh, mm-hmm. I think it's Nicholas. I might be wrong there. But anyways, he's uh, – I believe he's uh, originally from Lebanon. But the story goes that uh, he was trying to find out what the opposite of fragile was, and everyone he asked uh, would would give him an answer like, well, the opposite of fragile is robust or solid or – resilient, but he said, no, that's not the opposite. That's some that's the gray. That's the neutral. So you look at a rock, it's stable, robust. It's not fragile, but it's not anti-fragile. So what he he said, a fragile thing is something that sort of gets broken under pressure. An anti-fragile thing is something that doesn't stay the same under pressure. It gets stronger. Mm. and he, then he looked at I think he looked at cultures it's been many years since I read the book but he, he couldn't find a word for this in uh any culture so he decided to make the word anti-fragile and he carried on the rest of the book uh talking about this concept and if you look at it uh many aspects of life are anti-fragile you need a stress before um things get stronger and uh yeah. you know one example would be like a some uh kinds of uh cones in the for- some forests need a forest fire in order to uh germinate they yeah. they can't do it without that catastrophic event that kills everything else so that that's the concept of anti-fragile and i think that's so crucial again on a psychological level you look at a devastating thing in life whatever it is there's always going to be black and there's always going to be white you can choose which one is bad and which is good Again, it depends on where you come from, So, but I would say uh, there's always some good and there's always some bad. There's always a silver lining. There's always a dark cloud, even the greatest event or the worst event, and it's taking the one you want, which is for most people going to be the silver lining, the good part, and working on that and saying, okay, this terrible event happened, but here's the advantage of it, and I'm going to use this and make that they make the whole situation maybe even myself better in the long run that 's being anti fragile being fragile would be oh, for me, this terrible event happened i 'm going to focus on the, all the bad things there 's nothing I can do i 'm a victim mm. uh, I, you know it, it, this is just the mentality, and then you 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 can 't see the good thing and then of course, you know what you predict will will become the truth and and things make it worse for you overall. So I think there's a lot of power in perception and how you see an event, and uh, <laughs> you know I'm not just saying this, not, you know, not coming from bad events myself. I, you know, there are a number of them, but uh, yeah. you, you must do that, and as you do that and make it routine, so as you know, discipline wins over motivation. Day by day, doing something yeah, consistently, totally, <laughs> then you will change yourself, and suddenly. These events will stop happening because you have improved and you are getting the events you desire more. I really that believe uh, that this is po- a powerful stuff and um, yeah. you can take it to an extreme uh, and delude yourself. But if you do it properly with temperance and constantly reexamine yourself, it can be a very good thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean that that's, you know, the way I've approached some of the horrific things that have happened in my life. Um, is mm. what can I learn from it? Of course, you're down for the start, you know, and it, it's normal when it's human to cry and be, you know, flat on the floor trying to what the hell just happened to us. Uh but you you know, that, that I mean that's why I wrote this book, you know, was mm. because it's like, well, her story I could be angry at the world because this happened to my poor dear mother, and you know, uh, or I can go. Okay, here's what we learn, guys. Uh, here's here's yeah. What so we're writing learning. the book was an uh, exercise in anti fragility. Yeah, and uh, you've made a
1: positive out of that. You've made a positive event occur out of this terrible one
0: and i try to do that with everything that i've experienced that's horrible and it's not easy in the immediate aftermath necessarily but when you gain a little bit of perspective and time sometimes you can turn it into something good you know and that's at the end of the day what you you know you have to have that approach i mean looking at like what you know what the world's just been through in the last 3 years with the the big c if you like the other big c not the cancer <laughs> um we, we have to turn some of the the mental health issues that have come out of what we've all experienced and turn it into something positive. You know, there's been a very, you know, I don't want to get into the, the, the politics of it too much, but you know, like let's, okay, this has happened. There's been oh, some pretty horrific things that have happened through it. Um, what can we learn moving forward? What can we take from this learning journey and how can we um, empower us moving forward? You know, um, there's things to examine. I think, uh, you know, with the way we re- responded and all of that sort of jazz. Um, and I think um, what I would have liked to have seen more in the conversations around in the scientific community, especially in the medical community, would have been like, well, how do we make the people more strong? You know, how do we? How? how what can we do? Not just the, the 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 one drug or the one vaccine or the one thing approach again but what is it that would make these people stronger are there supplements that we can take are there things that we can you know optimize sleep can we lower stress can we do you know exercise can we do these things so that you're more anti-fragile so that you can withstand these things when they come. That was the it.
1: elephant in the room with the whole COVID oh. experience is why are we so susceptible to a virus? Mm. You know, this happens in history periodically in the setting of war, famine, that kind of thing. But it's the opposite now. Now it's happening in the setting of poor health on the, the anabolic side. We're not excessively catabolic. We're excessively anabolic. We're, we're too fat. We have too much insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetes is out of control. High blood pressure is out of control. The metabolic syndrome is out of control. And now we're unhealthy in the opposite way. And now we are susceptible to a virus. You look at the people who are most susceptible. There are people with the poor metabolic health. So 100%. Uh, but you're looking at things from a terrain theory perspective, yeah. whereas most people <laughs> will be looking at it from a germ theory. There's a virus. We have to kill it. So we need a vaccine. <laughs> we need whatever we need, something that targets it, that limits it and eliminates it. Eliminates it. Uh, so we don't get it. But the a terrain theory, a health oriented perspective would be, well, let's get it. If we're healthy, it's not going to be a big deal. I can tell you right now, you know, uh, I guess I, I don't mind saying it. I <laughs> I didn't want to get the vaccine at my hospital. I was one of the very last, if not the last uh, senior medical doctors to get it. But there was pressure. yeah, And it was either huge. that or I was going to lose yep. my job. And lose it job. wasn't the loss of the job. It was. I wouldn't be able to continue my trials. My glioblastoma trial was too important. I think it's too important for humanity, potentially absolutely, so I got the vaccine uh fine did that um but you know i it, in in all the last three years, I mean all my colleagues have been sick uh some of them many of them multiple times. I have not been ill from uh anything. I haven't had one sick day since I've been at Waikato wow. and um it's well, not always a good thing. Cause when you're is you sick, you have to do <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, and I, I'm not, maybe I got lucky you could say, but I'm around lots of people with COVID all the time or was not so much of it now. And, uh, I was doing a lot of fasting keto diets. You know, I got my, try to get good sleep. I do my high intensity exercise protocol, blah, blah, blah. I try to stay yeah. healthy. Think I am healthy or, and, uh, I don't know. I didn't get ill. So that to me is a much better way to approach it than to to just vaccinate everyone. And I don't like the philosophical idea of humanity being so weak that we just have to rely on on uh, vaccinations created by big pharmaceutical companies where where, uh, these guys, let's face it, their bottom line is to make a profit. Um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, theorist, but this is just a business model. Mm. So... um, you know, and I'm not necessarily anti-vax either, but uh, I just think that we we didn't, ex- as you say, we didn't examine the equation properly. We castigated anyone who had a different perspective. And uh, it's really important as a scientist to uh, question everything, be open to all perspectives and give them all uh, their their time and place in the discussion. And I, I really think that things were tilted uh, in a certain direction with that whole scenario. Yeah. So totally. I hope we do learn from it. I think a lot of people are have learned from it and are learning from it. So I, I think you're right. We are. Uh, I do think that we have a long way to go, though.
0: Yes, I do too. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I didn't get vaccinated. I'm in the the position of being, you know, self employed, and um. So yeah, you know, I, I I couldn't work for a lot of my work. I couldn't do, and my my uh, family members lost jobs and things like that. Um. So I, I know, you know, but um. Apart from the the philosophical, uh, what well, what I see was wrong with that. that you, you don't force people against their yes. will. Um, it 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 is just this again this very singular approach. There's one, and when you have people that are in a fear state, they will take anything. They will take any answer that you give them because they want the answer. I see people coming to me with. You know, give me the one thing that's going to fix what I've got. And when you say, well, there's actually, hang on, it's going to be a program of things and maybe we'll get better. And, you know, like it's just a more difficult concept and a a difficult sell. People want the one silver bullet for everything. That's why we're programmed is to want the simple.
1: Focusing on outcome over process. Yes. Got to focus on process over outcome. And you hope to get that outcome. Yeah. But you gotta, as you say, you gotta focus on the whatever the the path is, the program or whatever it is. Get that right. Like if you want to get, yeah, if you want to get strong, you know, you don't go to a gym like crazy and and look at yourself in a month. It's you create a good, go to do a good program, and just commit to it. And uh, let the outcome occur. And then suddenly six months later, it's like, oh, yeah, oh, Oh, yeah, I'm a lot stronger and faster, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. But it's the process that one must embrace. Yeah
0: just interrupting the show to let you know about my longevity and anti-aging supplement range I'd love you to go and check it out go to my website lisatarmity.com, and hit the shop button and you'll see a curated range of supplements the latest in anti-aging longevity health optimization performance optimization I've gone out into the world interviewed the most amazing doctors and scientists as you'll know if you follow the show and gone and got some of the best products that are out there stuff that I give to my family that's What's in my range? So go and check it out at lisatarmity.com. And, and the, the last thing, because I, I want to respect your time, and I've, I've taken up way too much of your time, but it's just an absolutely fabulous conversation. And when I get a chance to speak to someone like you, it's just so, so lucky and so privileged. Um, the sport, you know, like athletes, I come from, I have a lot of athletes who listen to the show and, um, you know, I've been an ultra marathoner, I've done extreme sports because, you know, everything I did in my life, I'm pretty much extreme in what I do and that has advantages and that has some big disadvantages as well as I've learned to temper that a little bit over time. And um, when I look back at, uh, you know, the extremes amounts of exercise, I don't believe now that that was a conducive thing for my health it was great for my mental health it was great for the sporting achievements it was great for the things that I learned by pushing my body to the absolute limits um, but you know and I, I wonder now because I wasn't keto and fat adapted or anything like that what sort of um benefits I could have derived out of being a, a keto adapted athlete um, you know, have you got any sort of rounding out thoughts for athletes listening to this about, you know, like, uh, keto, um, I listened to your, 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 episode with professor Grant Schofield, who I've had on the show. Yeah, and nice. uh, Yeah. I was going to yeah. say this
1: is reminiscent of that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, yeah. yeah uh, Cause I love his yeah. work
0: and I think he's fabulous. And yeah, um, he's an awesome yeah. guy. Yeah. I think, um,
1: uh, so keep in mind, my goal is health, not fitness. And I, I think we just have to make, uh, understand that there's a, there's a blend between health and fitness. They certainly overlap to a large degree, but there are areas where they don't. And at some point, uh, fitness can be on unhe- excess fitness can be unhealthy. And we see that with mm. ultra athletes, as you know, with, uh, mm. in the scientific literature. Uh, awesome. so <laughs> I think, uh, my goal is health because I see patients that are certainly not most of them ultra athletes, although I do see some, uh, most of them want to be healthy from a disorder or a disease, whatever you want to call it. And so, uh, health is, uh, Part of it is that balance between uh, anabolism, catabolism, uh, and uh, you can look at that balance from multiple perspectives, yin-yang. So you can say, uh, um, y- using exercise as an example, exercise uh, actually um, does one thing to the body. What's its opposite? It's, it's a proper resting protocol, sufficient rest. And I think mm-hmm. where a lot of ultra athletes uh, uh, go wrong from a health perspective is insufficient Resting protocols, including sleep, but not just sleep. Uh, but they have to because they're competing, right? So if you're competing for an event or you, you maybe you're doing it for the extreme mental health benefits, that, uh, feeling of euphoria and so on. Fine. That's, that's a good enough reason to excel. But if you're aiming for, as long as you understand it, there's probably going to be a cost to your health in the longer term. Um, then it's okay. Yeah. Where ultra athletes have trouble with ketosis, I would say is, uh, when you adopt metabolic strategies, therapies, whatever you want to call, it, you do fasting, keto diet protocols. Say, it takes most people a few months to actually get—not just you decline in strength and speed a, a little bit, just a little bit, maybe five percent tops or something like that. But for a few months now, if you're really on. Fit At the start, you probably won't decline much, if at all. Yeah. If you're fit, you'll decline for uh, a few months. Uh, at an ultra-athlete level, you know, you, it could be one or two years before your body can really get you back to that apex of fitness. And I don't think ultra-athletes who are competing can afford to do that. You know, you can't afford to have a one or two years of of uh, not being your best and missing out on a whole bunch of comps. Mm. So it's hard for ultra athletes to make this conversion. I do think once you do, uh, you look at guys like Zach Bitter, for example, you know, world record hundred mile run runners and so on, uh, then it's great. But it's the conversion um, that can mm. be difficult because remember, fasting and keto are designed to stress the body make life a little harder in the short term to make you better in the long term. So I don't know what to say. I would say if you're competing at that high level and you got to decide, well, what's more important to win comps for the next five years, probably don't go keto fasting or, or not all the way. If you've got 20 years of comps ahead of you, maybe it's worth, uh, uh, doing that like, uh, at an earlier age to, to get yourself keto adapted and then you you're all good. And then you go for it. Um, if you're not, if the comps aren't as important as your long term health, maybe you should just focus on health rather than fitness per se, uh, recognizing that one can be very healthy and still be very fit, but not uh, at a sort of that extreme level where you're uh, pushing your body outside of that uh, metabolic balance. That's, yeah. that's what I would say in a nutshell, I suppose, it's to each their own.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's really different, there's stages of life and there's things that we're doing for other reasons other than health. And I'm, you know, certainly glad I did a lot of the things that I got to experience. But for me, where I'm at now is not, it's not conducive for me to be doing that type of stuff. And I understand like, you know, also the genetic factors that come into play. Do you handle inflammation? Well, do you have, you know, good glutathione genes? Do you, you know, uh, different aspects? And then I think also the, the, the hormonal aspect for women is something that's also not always taken into consideration. And in some of these, um, you know, even with the fasting yeah. and keto, what's your take on that? Actually, for women in their cycle, is it safe for women to, to fast? Who are in their childbearing years um, want to preserve their fertility? Yes,
1: it is safe, I believe. Um, I don't have too many uh, women who are. Uh, I have some premenopausal doing these strategies, uh, but. To my knowledge, I haven't had any problem, seen any problems with it, but I can't say I've delved into the literature too much on the effects of uh, fasting keto in premenopausal women. I would say that, you know, again, remember health is about optimizing mitochondria function. So the problem with the long running and insufficient rest uh, or long anything, anything for hours, yeah. if you're exercising several hours a day is you're inducing massive inflammation. You're inducing, you're, you're forcing your mitochondria to produce tons of free radical mm. o- reactive oxygen species that's going to damage them in the long term you need a massive rest for them to recover and again if you throw in a bunch of nutrients so say you're you're drinking some power drink throughout the run or or you're uh having a high carbohydrate meal afterwards you're hitting them again with a nutrient overload they got to recover from that because that's going to generate reactive oxygen species so again that's where the whole uh being fat adapted having fasting periods and so on can be just, it's sort of like you're, you're running on diesel rather than petrol and you're, you're creating a, a nicer environment for your mitochondria, helping them recover quicker with adequate rest periods. So that harps uh, back to the original conversation a bit. But yeah, no, to, to answer your question on premenopausal woman, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold off getting into that one too much because yeah. uh, I, yeah, I think there are other nuanced. people who know more than me about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's definitely a, a very, you know, we just need a lot more work and a lot more studies on it. Hi, hey, Doctor Matt. Yeah. You've just been absolutely wonderful today. I'm so grateful for you and your. I, I love the way you think. I love listening to your lectures and really thinking. It's been challenging uh, in preparing for this interview. Challenged the way I've thought about a few things and um, okay. solidified the way that I've uh, you know thinking and and just some of the and new information that I've gained out of out of this uh, learning that I've been on since uh, discovering you. Well, thanks for having um, me. It's been a great pleasure. Oh it's been absolutely wonderful. Um is it do you do any social media or anything like that to um uh, or is there any way that people can contribute to your work or in any way you know any way that they I can I try to do you? as little
1: social media as possible but, <laughs> well, uh, but I don't think it's good for your brain processing but uh, that's no. a different thing. <laughs> uh, I do have Twitter. So you can find me, uh, the handle is, uh, or it's not Twitter anymore. It's X, isn't it? So, yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's at Dr. MCL Phillips, I think mm-hmm. from memory, I might be wrong, but it, uh if in doubt, I have a website that a patient, uh wonderful patient and a very close friend of mine now, Saron Aramica started for me. So that's metabolic com, and you can get me through there uh on email too. And it's got most of our videos and, and stuff. And I'm, when Education. this one comes out, I'll put it up
0: there too. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a lot of education on there and Sirona's story, which I didn't even get into, which I wanted to talk to, but uh, all of those sorts of uh, the, the clinical research that you're doing. So go to the Metabolic Neurologist. I'll put the links down below, everybody. Dr. Matt, thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review, and share with your friends. Head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatamati.com.